Madeline Arakawa Jens, visionary architect, is dead at 72. This was a New York Times article in 2014 that caught my eye. And I wanted to know why this was especially important, maybe just beyond her fame. And it didn't take me very long to understand why she caught the attention of so many. She and her husband, who preceded her in death, sought to develop this philosophy of living. They sought not merely better living, but ideally eternal living through design. The architecture that they sought to implement was called reversed destiny living. And in each of the apartments that they would build or houses they would build, there would be no line that was plumb. There would be no floor that was even. Everything was at an angle. And the thought was that this architecture, instead of helping us live in ease, would always be disorienting us and challenging us and therefore heightening our sensibilities and the ability to live and navigate life. Now, whatever you might think of that, they made a lot of money building these places. And their chief tenant was captured in an exhibition they did at Guggenheim Museum. And this was the title of the exhibition, Reversible Destiny. And it had this subtitle, which was a defiant challenge. We have decided not to die. Now, that's ironic in light of the fact that both she and her husband went on to pass away. But that idea of a reversible destiny, I want to contend, is something that is in each and every one of us. We, we know that even though death seems universal and all-powerful, we all want to escape it. We all want to outwit it at some level. We all know that given enough time, death itself will rob us of everyone that we love and hold dear. We hate it, even though it seems like it's such a part of life. Today we're going to look at a passage in which a pillar of a community finds himself in desperate situations. His worst nightmare is coming true. His daughter is lying at death's door. And something within him is compelled to, to push away every instinct to stay by her dying side and to arise and go to Jesus. We're going to look at this passage today. Because it helps us not only understand who Jesus is, but it helps us understand who, or rather, how we ought to think about death. If you're here today and you're exploring the gospel of Jesus, maybe you're just trying to understand the basic tenets of it. One of the invitations you're going to see today in this text is an invitation to think about death differently in light of Jesus. And if you are here today as a follower of Jesus, you're going to be encouraged to stake your life and your death on Jesus, who radically redefines death around himself. So I thought about calling our study today Reversible Destiny, but instead I'm going to call it the Master's Touch. We're going to be in Luke chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 40 through 56. Let me pause for just a second and invite you to pray together with me as we seek the Lord's help in understanding this passage. Let's pray. Lord, we come here this day, some of us being seasoned followers of Jesus, perhaps even have read or heard this passage taught before and are familiar with it. Others of us come in here and we're just trying to understand the basics of who Jesus is and this text is completely new to us. Help us, no matter where we are, 
to see what you want us to see in this. Help us to understand who this person Jesus is and what he has come to do for us. Help us to understand the master's touch as we look, about, as we look at this story about the issue of death. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in this section of the Gospel of Luke, the question Luke wants first and foremost in our minds is this question. Who is this man, Jesus? This is a question that his disciples were beginning to ask themselves afresh. They thought they knew Jesus. They had their hopes certainly banked on him. But Jesus begins to do certain things, and it's blowing their minds. And he, they begin to ask this question, who is this? We thought we knew him. But obviously, there's more than meets the eye. So that's the question that should be uh, echoing through our minds as we take another step in this gospel and hear what Luke has to say. So let me invite you to, to join the crowds on the Sea of Galilee as they're awaiting for Jesus to return. And this is what Luke tells us. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Now, Jesus had gone on a trip with his disciples across the Sea of Galilee into Gentile country. That is non-Jewish country. And there he was met and did some amazing things, and the people wanted him to leave. And so Jesus returned. And so now the crowds are welcoming him at Galilee. This is his adopted hometown. His own hometown of Nazareth had rejected him, didn't want anything to do with him. And so he adopted Galilee. And so he has been there teaching before. He's done amazing things before, and they're eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus. And so we're told, there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. Now we're told the name of this man, who was the ruler of the synagogue, that was he was a leader in their community. Everyone knew who this man was. He was the center of the social life there, the religious life, the spiritual life, the political life. He was a leader in the community. And so there are these crowds welcoming Jesus. And there's also this man, Jairus, who comes. But he has something on his mind. Luke tells us in verse 41, Falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, my friends, throughout our study today, I want you to intentionally put yourself in the sandals of Jairus to think about what he might have been thinking about, to feel what he must have been thinking about. We're told that he comes to Jesus and he falls at his feet. He implores him. He begs him. He pleads with him to come with him. And the reason why is because his worst nightmare is coming true. His daughter, his only child, is lying at death's door. And so we're not told exactly what he's thinking. Maybe he knows that Jesus is known as a miracle worker. He does signs and wonders that can only be described as miraculous. We don't know if he is a bona fide follower of Jesus, but his desperate situation compels him to come, to fall at Jesus' feet, to beg him to come, because he needs Jesus now. We're told, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. Jesus is wildly popular He's the hometown hero. But Jairus must be chafing at what's going on here. He wants to get Jesus to his daughter as fast as he can. But the crowds are pressing in upon him. People are wanting to touch him. Maybe to bring their baby to get Jesus to bless them. Maybe to 
to, to say a prayer for them. The crowds are pressing in. And with every slower step, Jairus must have felt more and more desperate. And then something else happens that causes Jesus to stop completely. We're told in verse 43, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now think about this. Luke says this is a medical condition. He's a physician. He knows about medical conditions. This woman had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, I'm not a woman. I'm a man. I'm married to a woman. And I know lots of women. And I think women could probably understand how desperate this woman must have felt in ways that men cannot. Just think about how emotionally weary she must have been to have this issue of nonstop bleeding for 12 years. Think about how embarrassing this must have been. We think about that from our own context, but in her own context as well. Through the Torah, there were certain rules that were laid down about who could enter worship and when. And if a person was bleeding, they were not allowed to enter into the worship of the Lord. So here was this woman who had major, major issues already. And she feels like an outsider, never being able to approach and to worship along with her people. We're told that she had spent everything she had on physicians. She could not be healed by anyone. When the gospel writer Mark tells this story, he says this, she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. Her tragic condition compelled her to arise and to go to Jesus, and the crowds are pressing in, but she's fighting her way through, wanting to get to Jesus. And then we're told in Luke's gospel, verse 44, that she came up behind him. She, she made her way to him, and she touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately the discharge of blood ceased. Now think about this. Here she was in desperate conditions. She just knew she had to get to Jesus. She didn't know exactly what he might do for her, but she wanted to plead her cause before him. And it says here, she, she touches the fringe of his garment, which leads me to believe that she had fallen down because the fringe of his garment would have been at his ankles. And she touches that in the midst of this crowd pressing in. And something right then changed within her. She felt power invade her body. She felt whole for the first time. She couldn't explain it, but something in her had changed. We're told in verse 45, Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all the crowd denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. <laughs> I find this humorous, right? Jesus says, first of all, who was it that touched me? It's interesting reading commentators on this. Some think, well, maybe just Jesus for sure didn't know who it was and, and wanted to know. Some say, well, he did know, but wanted to ask the question for the sake of the crowds. I'm wondering if he's asking this question for the sake of this woman. She has been on the outskirts of society. She is impoverished. No doubt she has lived in fear, disillusionment. So Jesus asked this question, who is it that touched me? And everyone's denying it, which that's the part I find humorous because everyone's pressing in on Jesus, right? Everyone's wanting to touch him. Everyone's wanting to slap him on the back. Everyone's wanting to give him a hug. 
Everyone's delaying him. And now this woman has delayed him. And Jairus must be going crazy out of his mind. He's trying to get Jesus to his daughter. And now Jesus is focused on something else. Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. That word power is meant to connect us to the idea of God's spirit being thick upon Jesus. When he began his ministry, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's anointed me to to set at liberty those who are enslaved. And here was the poor, poor woman who was enslaved to her issue. And the power of God, Jesus says, has gone out and touched someone who had touched him. Verse 47 says, When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared it in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Now think about this. This woman, maybe she's still trying to make sense of what just happened to her. And Jesus is saying, who touched me? And she gets the courage to come forward. And it must have been a courage wavering because it says she was trembling. She falls down at Jesus. And as she's there on her knees at his feet, she begins to declare in the presence of everyone what just happened to her. Why she touched Jesus, reaching across those social barriers. And what exactly happened to her, how immediately she had been healed. This is glorious. This is an amazing snapshot that Luke wants us to understand about who Jesus is. That he had this kind of power. But I keep thinking of Jairus. He must have been watching this thinking, this is really good. But my daughter is dying. Surely this can wait. Surely we can talk about these things later. I need Jesus now. I need that power that just touched this woman in my house right now to touch my dying daughter before it's too late. But he had to wait a little bit longer. Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Here was a woman And if we would have asked her, do you have great faith? I bet she probably would have said, no, I don't. Or my faith wavers. But all I knew is I had to arise and go to Jesus. I had to get to him. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. That phrase, made you well, literally means your faith saved you or has saved you. It's from a Greek word that means to save or to deliver. Jesus used this exact phrase earlier in his gospel when the woman who had a certain reputation in the town crashed a dinner party that Jesus was at with a Pharisee. And she came weeping before him, washing his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. The Pharisee was just disgusted at this display going on. But Jesus picked her up and said to him, do you see this woman? And of course, the Pharisee didn't. He just saw someone who disgusted him. But Jesus turned to her and said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What wonderful news to to hear Jesus be able to say something like that to us. It's not that we have to have great faith, great trust, great confidence in Jesus. 
We just need to have some. It's not about the greatness of our faith, but it's where that faith is placed. And so he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, or your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And again, Jairus must be going, great, let's go. Get to my daughter, Jesus, come on. But we're told in verse 49, while Jesus was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Can you put yourself in Jairus' shoes for just a moment? He had hopes that maybe Jesus could do something. He went to him. Asked him to come. Jesus said, sure, I'll come. He gets distracted, gets tangled up in the crowds, has this episode where he, he works in such a way that a woman is healed. But maybe if that delay hadn't happened, maybe Jesus could have gotten to his daughter. Maybe there would be a different story. Maybe her destiny could have been reversed. As I think about what Jairus must have felt here, we're not told but his worst nightmare has come true. And if you've been in a situation like that, it feels like everything's closing in on you. And as I reflected on this, I thought all these different emotions and thoughts must have come crashing in upon him. Not simply disappointment, but despair, disillusionment, disorientation, darkness, death, destiny. I didn't start to make all this start with D, but it kind of worked out that way as I got going. But, but everything must have gone silent. His world just shrank. All he could focus in on was his pain. His heart ripped out of him. Jesus is seeing exactly what's going on. Luke tells us that Jesus, on hearing this, he says, but Jesus. I love that phrase. <laughs> With Jesus, there's still more to the story. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. I've been to my share of funerals over the years. Sometimes people say really encouraging things. And sometimes people meaning to be encouraging, say really, really wrong things. I wonder what this messenger must have thought. I wonder what Jairus must have thought to hear Jesus say, do not, believe, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Is this what you say to a father who just received news that his daughter, his, his treasure, is no longer here. Jesus says it, though. And we're not told if, if, if he found faith rising within him. Maybe he did. I imagine Jesus picked him up and, and carried him along. But there's something interesting going on here. One commentator by the name of, of Tom Wright said, Jesus' command to Jairus to have faith comes immediately after he told the woman that her faith has brought her salvation. Jesus tells him to believe. Verse 51, when he came to the house, 
He allowed no one to enter in with him except Peter and John and James. These are his closest uh, disciples, his, his closest friends. Jesus doesn't allow anyone to come into the house, but Peter, John, and James, and the father and the mother of the child, and all were weeping and mourning for her. I think we're meant to understand not simply the family, but the extended family, the neighbors, and, and maybe even the community. Remember, Jairus was a pillar of the community. Probably lots of people knew that his daughter was on death's door. Lots of people were praying. Maybe they heard that he went to go get Jesus. And so they're waiting to come back, but, but he didn't come. And so everyone is weeping and mourning for her, as is appropriate when death robs us of our loved ones. But Jesus. But Jesus said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. Doesn't Jesus know what happens when someone dies? They're not sleeping. They're dead. So the people who were mourning laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. She knows what you know, that when people die, they are dead. These weren't gullible people. They knew what it's like to see the color leave a person's face. They know what it means when a person stops breathing. And so they laughed at him. Earlier in the gospel, we're told that Jesus was speaking on the plains to the crowds, and he told them that their weeping would be turned to laughter. But this is not what he meant. Their weeping would be turned to laughter when the kingdom of God comes. But here they're laughing at Jesus. They're mocking him because he's saying that she's asleep. When, he's, when this girl is actually dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. What an interesting, almost bizarre moment this is for anyone in the nation of Israel to touch a dead body means that the contamination of that body is transferred to you. You become ceremonially unclean. But Jesus nevertheless takes her hand. And he says to her, child, arise. He, he speaks as if you and I would speak to go awaken a young child who is sleeping. Child, it's time to get up now. If you're a Christian and you've read the Gospels or have heard them taught before, you're not surprised by this because you know this is exactly what Jesus would say. But let's take a moment, just a moment, to think about how odd this is for anyone to do something like this. How odd it is for someone to, to enter a room where there is a corpse and to touch the corpse and say to that corpse, Arise. Let's say my friend Jackson were to come to a funeral and at the funeral would come up to the person who is dead and to touch the body and say, arise. Who does something like that? 
for anyone to do something like this, the same people in the room would go and grab that person and throw them out. For you and I to come up to this child and say, child, arise, it's time to get up. You should expect to be received by screaming and shoutings of anguished parents telling you to leave. But Jesus said, child, arise. And we're told her spirit returned and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. What? Jesus said to this girl who who just experienced death, that was her destiny. He said to her, child, arise. Her destiny reversed. She got up. She began eating. Who is this man who has this kind of power, who has this kind of authority? And we're told in the last verse of our study, her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. That English word amazed is, is really, it's amazing, but it's weak. I mean, literally, they were astonished. They were speechless. They're not believing what their eyes are seeing, and yet they're being filled with joy at the reunion of their daughter who has just come back to life. They've never seen anything like this before. The tears of joy, <laughs> the, the laughter emerging from them as they seek to comprehend how they were just tearful and mourning, and their mourning had been changed to laughter. And Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone what just happened. Really, Jesus? <laughs> so I read some commentators to, to kind of figure out maybe what they were thinking on this. They said, well, maybe Jesus didn't want them to speak about what had happened because you know, he wanted to control his own message. He wanted to control his own brand. He didn't want people just going around saying he raises the dead left and right. He wanted to be able to define who he was. I mean, no doubt Jesus wanted to control his message. I mean, people were getting it wrong all the time. But I don't know. In other contexts, maybe that's a bit more convincing. But in this one, I, I just don't know. And, and maybe you can disagree with me on this. But we're not really told what the look of Jesus was, the tone of his voice. But personally, I have to wonder if there wasn't a twinkle in his eye and maybe a, a curved smile at the edge of his mouth when he told them, don't tell anyone what just happened. I mean, how are they to obey that, right? I mean, the look on their face would tell everyone. They wouldn't even have to use words. They would walk out of their house and people would want to know what would happen. Are they to keep her locked up in chains under the bed? I don't know. You, you, can, you can maybe discuss afterwards what you think about my take on that. But he tells them to, to tell no one what had just happened. And obviously they told, or the community told. Someone told because we know about it. But let not this truth escape us, my friends. Jesus arrested death. He stopped death dead in its tracks. But more than that, Jesus simply spoke. And the curse of death was undone. Destiny was reversed. And so, why does Luke, this ancient physician, 
Who knows this would have been an incredible story for us to understand and to believe. Why would he take time to help us to understand that this took place for a pillar in the community of Galilee? Well, he's wanting us to come to grips with who Jesus is. That's why he's wanting us to ask the question, who is this man? What relevance does he have for my life? Again, Tom writes in his commentary, said, Luke has been patiently pointing out through one story after another who Jesus really is. He is also at the same time opening the way for his central explanation of what Jesus came to achieve. What did he come to achieve? My friends, nothing less than the death of death. To reverse destiny to undo the curse, to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. If I can summarize our study for us and drive it home on one point, this is how I would bottom line it for us. We are being summoned to fall at the feet of Jesus, the world's true king who comes with healing in his hands. I want to make just a few points of application here, my friends. The first one is simply this. Find yourself at the feet of Christ the King. Let's find ourselves at the feet of Christ the King. Luke is writing, doing this research project. He tells us in the opening verses of his gospel account that he has interviewed eyewitnesses. He has received firsthand information from those he saw it. He may have even interviewed Jairus himself. We don't know that for sure. But he contains this account, and he's writing to convince you about who Jesus is. And Luke is saying, look, you got to understand, Jesus is not just extraordinary. He is that. He's in a class entirely by himself. Jesus has the authority and the power to reverse our destiny. And as amazing as this miracle, this duo of miracles is, was, is, This isn't the greatest miracle that Jesus achieved. The greatest miracle, the greatest reversal of destiny came three days after he was nailed to the cross, after he himself tasted death for us, and he conquered death, and he came back to life. Not just simply coming back to life, but coming back through life, to new life, with new creation following in his steps. Jesus met some of his disciples who at first were completely confused what all this meant. And he tells them, which is Luke, is what, what Luke is going to tell us at the end of his gospel, that thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Just like Jairus and his wife And that community witnessed the miracle of the raising of their daughter. So these disciples and many others became eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is where Luke is taking us as he gives us these pictures of his life and ministry. So we are meant to find ourselves at the feet of Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed this in this text and even if you were here last week in the the text we saw before. The text that we were just in last week had this portrayal of a, of a man who had been supernaturally influenced. The word was demonized by malevolent personal beings. And Jesus healed this man. He cast them out. And this man, 
was dressed and in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And this is the account we looked at today. Jairus comes and falls at the feet of Jesus. This woman comes and falls at the feet of Jesus. And Luke is wanting us to see the big picture. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who has all power and authority, is the one who summons us to him. And our response should be simply to fall at his feet. This one who loved us and gave himself for us. So that's the first point of application, my friends. Let us find ourselves at the feet of Jesus. Here's the second one. Let us also redefine death as mere sleep. Jesus does this for us. And if we are followers of Jesus, we ought to fall in line with that. One commentator by the name of Philip Ryken said, when, when Jesus said this, he was not offering a different diagnosis. Instead, he was introducing a whole new perspective on what it meant to die based on his divine power over life and death. And the early Christians picked this up. It's everywhere in the New Testament. For example, the Apostle Paul, who's at one time an enemy of Jesus and his early movement, but became a follower of Jesus when he met the resurrected Jesus, is writing to Christians in Corinth. And he's reminding them of the gospel that Jesus had to die according to the scriptures, that he rose again from the dead. Then he tells us he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He's like, look, you can go right now and meet these, these people who witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Some of them, though, have not died, but fallen asleep. He goes on and says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because Jesus conquered death in his own being, so too we will follow in his footsteps. The Apostle Paul would write to some Christians in Thessalonica and said this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. He means died, but he's using the phrase asleep. And the reason I don't want you to be uninformed, he says, is that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. When you get who Jesus is, when you become a follower, that is, when you bank your life on who he is, we still experience the pain of this world. But death has now forever been transformed. For those who know him, it is simply sleep. And so we grieve, yes. But we don't grieve as if death has the final word because it doesn't. He would write, in the next sentence. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so, my friends, if, if you follow Jesus, it's a win-win proposition. If you live, it's a win. If you die, it's a win. That's what Paul himself would testify to groups of Christians living in Philippi. He said, for me to live is Christ. <laughs> my life is all about Jesus now. To live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better by far. In his mind, when he dies and he's in prison, it's a real possibility he might be executed by Rome. In his mind, it is better not to die and be apart from Christ, but to die and immediately be transformed into his presence. So let's find ourselves at the feet of Jesus. Let's redefine death as a mere sleep. And then let's engage our city with the good news. And my friends, the reason I want us to engage our city with this is because our city tells all kinds of interesting things about death. 
For example, it tells us you only live once. So grab for all the gusto. It tells us to do whatever you can to reverse your destiny. Make a name for yourselves. Become famous. Leave a legacy. Other people will tell us, you know, you die, but who knows what happens afterwards. We have a better story to tell. Not simply because of this miracle that Jesus performed for Jairus, but because of his own resurrection from the dead. And his resurrection is not only the first fruits of our own resurrection, it is the first fruits of what is called the renewal of all things, when God will set this world to right and everything will be exactly like it's supposed to be. C.S. Lewis told a really good story, a series of children's stories called The Chronicles of Narnia. And in the last battle, as he wraps up this story, he talks about how the main characters in in most of this uh, series have now been transported into the true Narnia, Aslan's country. They have left this world, which he called the Shadowlands, and now are in the presence of everything they've wanted to be in the presence of. They're looking around, and the mountains are taller, and the the sky is bluer, and the, the grass is greener, and they're just overwhelmed with beauty. And they see Aslan approach them, and Aslan says to them, you don't look as happy as I want you to be. And Lucy boldly says, we're afraid you might send us away. And this is what Aslan says. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, C.S. Lewis tells us, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can uh, most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. C.S. Lewis is riffing off Jesus, the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. Talk about reversible destiny. My friends, may you know the master's touch and the peace that comes from knowing that Jesus has the final word.